Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from eastern Ukraine in the aftermath of last week's downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. And we'll ask if the tragedy could be a game changer in the standoff over Ukraine between Russia and the West. But we begin with Gaza, where more than two weeks of bombardment by Israeli ground, sea and air forces have left more than 600 dead. Almost all of them Palestinians, most of them civilians, and including scores of children. Our correspondent, Ruan McCormick, has spent the last week in Gaza, and he joins us now. And here with me in studio is the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Ruan, could you describe the condition of civilian life in Gaza as you saw it? Well, uh, conditions are extremely difficult. Um, The streets of Gaza City have been virtually deserted for the past week, um, except for a five-hour humanitarian ceasefire window um, last Thursday when suddenly people spilled out onto the streets. They they left their homes for the first time in in 10 days. They caught up on their shopping. They they met friends. In many cases, they surveyed the damage to the city for the first time. But mostly, uh, the city is deserted. People don't go out. They haven't been able to stock up on food for the most part. Um, It's particularly difficult in the eastern outskirts since the um, Israeli ground operation began uh, last Thursday huge districts along the eastern border of Gaza City and towards the border with Israel uh, have been in the firing line. Um, Leaflets dropped there last Thursday. The Israelis dropped leaflets in three districts, including Shujaia, um, where they urged people to to leave as soon as possible. They indicated that there would be some sort of missile attack. Most people didn't leave. Hamas uh, told people not to leave, but also um, they didn't know where they would go if they did leave. Um, The UN has been providing shelter to uh, tens of thousands of people, the figure across past um, 100,000 yesterday. Um, But conditions in these shelters, most of them are converted schools that the UN runs in Gaza. Conditions are very, very difficult. Sanitation is poor. Um, They're provided with one meal a day, but you might have 40, 50, 60 uh, people in a a classroom sleeping on mattresses or in many cases just sleeping on, on the floor where there aren't enough mattresses. So people are reluctant to leave their homes even when they know that they're in the firing line um, because they don't know where to go or they don't want to live in these in these very difficult conditions in the, in the shelters. Um, so there's a feeling of terror on the streets. Um, the problem is you, you might decide to stay in your home, um, but you, you, it might happen that your home is next to a, a house that will be targeted by the Israelis and yours will be taken with it. Or you can go out and, and risk walking down, down the wrong street at the wrong time and, and uh, finding yourself, uh, finding yourself uh, where a missile falls. So conditions are very, very difficult, and it's really taking a toll on people. And, and there's a very strong sense everywhere you go, everybody you speak to, that people want this to stop as soon as possible. And uh, now you mentioned these leaflets that the uh, Israeli forces have been dropping uh, occasionally to warn. There, there are various forms of warnings that the Israelis have been giving. What kind of things have they been doing? I heard of three different um, uh, techniques that were used. Firstly, there are these sort of robocalls where somebody will pick up a telephone, uh, they'll, they'll pick up their mobile phone and there'll be an automated message uh, in Arabic. Um, the, the, the speaker will introduce him or herself as, as, uh, as being from the Israeli Defense Forces 
and will tell that person uh, to leave their leave his or her home because uh, a missile attack or some other attack is is in the offing. Um, most people I spoke to who received those robocalls said they didn't pay much heed to them because they knew that uh, it wasn't an individual call. That a lot of people were receiving this and they felt that maybe it was a tactic tactic to to scare them. Uh, as much as anything else. The second um, technique is an individual call where um, I I spoke to one man, for example, where he picked up his mobile phone one afternoon and uh, an Israeli representative on the other end of the line said, uh, Gamal, leave your home, you've got five minutes. So he was identified by name. Uh, He was given five minutes to leave the house and then a couple of minutes later, uh, a missile fell on the house. The third technique is this: what's referred to in Gaza as the knock on the roof, where um, some sort of a small projectile or a missile, missile will hit the roof of the house, um, and that will be taken as a signal that a, a, a missile is about to follow. And usually, depending on, on the, the, the case, there's a, 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 an interval of between three and five minutes between the, um, the the arrival of that projectile or small missile, the warning, and the arrival of the uh, of the larger bomb or missile. What are Gazans saying about the role of Hamas in all of this? I think the, the feeling you get is very much that Hamas is seen as being in a defensive posture. Um, Hamas is rarely um, referred to as Hamas. It's always referred to as the resistance. Um, there's a very strong sense that Hamas was forced into this, that it, it was reacting to uh, Israeli aggression. Um, surely there is some um, opposition to Hamas, some um, skepticism about what it's doing, but it's very difficult to get people to talk to you about that. Uh, uh, in public, at least, you hear very little uh, um, questioning of, of Hamas. But I think genuinely there is a feeling there that Hamas has been pushed into this and that it's reacting to, uh, as it's often put, to, to Israeli uh, Israeli aggression. And you'll hear constantly about the, the disproportionate um, uh, resources and the disproportionate force being used, um, Hamas on the one side with their homemade rockets and Israel with one of the most sophisticated armies in the world, this argument will be put to you again and again. So I think whatever um, misgivings there might have been about Hamas over the last few years, and it's often pointed out that the standard of living of people in Gaza has not improved at all. Um, On the contrary, since 2006 when Hamas won the election in Gaza, um, despite misgivings they may have about the civil administration of the Strip and about their treatment by that administration, there's quite strong support for Hamas, uh, or at least for the campaign it's currently waging. Paddy Smith, the United Nations, the US, Egypt and various others are trying to broker a ceasefire. How are these efforts going? Well, not very well. I mean, they're focused in, in, in Cairo. The Qataris are, are, are also involved. The real problem is that the um, Egyptians and the Hamas, um, the Egyptians traditionally would have been the main brokers of such deals, um, and they are barely speaking to Hamas at the moment. Uh, Sisi, the Egyptian president, is deeply hostile to Muslim Brotherhood and any of their allied uh, forces. Um, so the Egyptians, uh, while they're hosting the talks, or hosting sorts of talks, uh, are not really able to play the role that they have in the past. John Kerry, of course, is there at the moment, and we understand he's, as as we speak, he's having a press conference. We'll see what, what emerges. But the, there isn't any great sense of optimism that they will achieve anything. What are the minimum demands of each side in this? 
Well, the for the Israelis, it's a, it's a question of, of, of silencing Hamas. It, they're, they're not going as far as saying we want to destroy Hamas, but they're talking about the restoration of the terms of, of a previous ceasefire in 2012, basically means crippling the uh, capacity of Hamas, as well as getting assurances that there won't be attacks. For Hamas, it's more, uh, it's more ambitious. The Hamas are, if you like, looking for a situation which is, which is, which goes beyond the status quo ante. In other words, that they they won't want to see positive gains, notably the list lifting of the of the blockade of Gaza, and if they got a lifting of the blockade of Gaza, would be able to represent that as 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 a victory. It doesn't seem to me, given the balance of forces, that that is a realistic aspiration. And the Israelis are happy enough to see the situation continuing, even though they're making losses, uh, because they're establishing facts on the ground, which is a great Israeli method of approach to things. They're, they're destroying the Hamas uh, capacity to strike at them. Now, Hamas are part of a unity government with uh, the PLO. Uh, and what role is the Palestinian Authority playing in all of this? Um, well, they would be encouraging Hamas to take up the, the the ceasefire suggestions that the the Egyptians had had made the other day, uh, there are there otherwise they're pretty much on on, on the sidelines. Uh, there is a suggestion that that um, uh, the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, would put forces into the Rafah uh, crossing with with Egypt and would police them as part of, of a deal. Uh, that's something which I can I can well see the, the PLO being willing uh, to do, um, somewhat eroding the position of of the uh, Hamas in in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so Hamas will not be enthusiastic about that. Uh, Ruan McCormick, you're currently on the Israeli side of the border. What's the popular attitude there to the operation in Gaza? Well, there's a, a spectrum of opinion. On the one hand, there are people who want the operation to end immediately. On the other, there are people who want it to go even further. Um, um, that view is, is well represented by Avigdor Lieberman, the foreign minister who wants Israel to take full control of the, uh, the Gaza Strip uh, and to, 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 to pursue its, its mission until that point. Um, in the middle, I think you've got the large swathe of opinion represented by, you know, the opinion polls consistently show there's about 80% of people who support what uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been doing, who support this limited uh, ground operation aimed at discovering and destroying tunnels that link uh, eastern Gaza with, with Israel. Uh, I spent a lot of time speaking to people in Ashkelon, this border town, yesterday, and it was very difficult to find anybody who uh, believed that Israel should should pull out. And yet at the same time, there's, um, there's concern about the mounting death toll. Um, 27, 28 uh, Israeli soldiers have died since last Thursday when this ground operation began. And the question is, w will that death toll reach such a point that Benjamin Netanyahu and the government start to, be, start to come under more pressure domestically to wind this down sooner rather than later. Uh, finally, Ron, when this operation started, many of us expected and hoped that it was going to be brief and limited, but it's been going on now for more than two weeks. Uh, given all that we know now, do you see any sign of an end to it in the next few days? Uh, it's difficult to say. Um, we haven't heard yet what has uh, come out of the initial discussions that have taken place involving John Kerry in, in Cairo. Um, there's a feeling in Gaza that, that this may have uh, a good few days uh, left to go. Um, there's real anger that 
it's only in recent days that there seems to be any sense of international urgency about resolving it. I think one of the crucial questions is what can Hamas, Hamas needs to emerge from this. And of course, all, all eyes are on Hamas. Uh, Egypt agreed, or, excuse me, Israel agreed to that uh, ceasefire proposal from the Egyptians last week. So all eyes are on Hamas and specifically what Hamas can get from a deal that will enable it to go back to the people of Gaza and say, this is why all of this was worthwhile. Uh, they may be able to live w- with some sort of easing of restrictions at the Rafah border, as, as Patrick said. Uh, it may take more than that, but the question is, what can Hamas be given so that they can go back to their constituency and say, this has been worthwhile? Ruan McCormick and Patrick Smith, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. We don't know for certain what happened to Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 last week before it fell to earth in eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 people on board. But almost everybody believes the aircraft was shot down by pro-Russian rebels using a sophisticated surface-to-air missile that may have come from Russia itself. Western anger with rebels and with Russian President Vladimir Putin has been compounded by the delays and chaos surrounding the recovery of remains and the investigation of the crash scene. And there's pressure from more sanctions against Moscow. I'm joined now from Donetsk in eastern Ukraine by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin and from Brussels by the Irish Times European correspondent Suzanne Lynch. Dan McLaughlin, there seems to have been some progress in the last day or so in the recovery operation. Can you bring us up to date? Certainly. Um, Two of the main elements of this uh, recovery process, of course, regard the the bodies of the 298 victims of the disaster and the black box flight recorders, um, which investigators obviously hope will uh, hold some some information, key information as to what actually happened to uh, the flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur last Thursday. Um, Last night, a train holding about 200 of of the bodies of the victims left uh, a town called a small town called Torres in eastern Ukraine, in rebel-held territory in eastern Ukraine, uh, a few miles from the crash site itself. Um, the train pulled away, uh, travelled through Donetsk, uh, stopped for several hours in Donetsk itself, which is the the centre, the rebel centre here. Not quite clear why it stopped, but then in the early hours of this morning it moved on again, and uh, round about midday local time it, to Kharkiv. Uh, the second largest city in, in Ukraine, a uh, major city in eastern Ukraine, but which is under government control. Um, from there, uh, the bodies are expected, the first bodies are expected to be flown back to the Netherlands either very late tonight or uh, certainly tomorrow. The government in the Netherlands has said that they expect the first bodies back uh, at the latest tomorrow. As regards the black box flight recorders, Malaysian officials arrived here um, uh, somewhat surprisingly. No one really knew... Uh, the status of talks between the Malaysians and the rebels regarding flight recorders. But a team from Malaysia arrived in Donetsk yesterday, last night, uh, again with an unexplained delay. It took four or five hours to actually uh, finalize a deal, it seemed, between the rebels and the Malaysians to transfer the black box flight recorders. But in a, a ceremony, a signing ceremony and a handover ceremony in the early hours of this morning, Two black box flight recorders were handed to the Malaysians by the rebels, uh, and Malaysia said today that it will hold on to those flight recorders until an international investigation team can be fully formed, and the um, those two potentially crucial recorders can be handed to the international team. And what about the crash scene itself, which is obviously it covers a vast area? Who's guarding that or who's investigating? Well, it's still not very well guarded at all. Um, Obviously, this is a very chaotic area. It's effectively a war zone. And 
the, the organization of the rebels and simply the number of rebels don't allow them to conduct any kind of um, proper security operation around a, uh, an area of this size. Even if they tried to do so, they wouldn't have the manpower to do it. So we've seen very small groups of rebels guarding uh, the main sites, uh, the areas that where, where the largest pieces of wreckage lie. Um, but uh, we've also seen them really when, when the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, monitors have arrived at these scenes to assess the status of the, of the crash site. That's when uh, security has been boosted in what looks really like an effort just to, to try and convince the international community that a proper security operation is taking place. But it's really not. I mean, large areas of the... Of, of this region are completely unguarded. Large pieces of wreckage um, have been unguarded. The bodies were left untended for a long time. Um, and we've seen information today from the monitors, the OSC monitors who went out there, saying that they fear that, that pieces of wreckage, large pieces of wreckage that they had uh, noted and recorded on previous visits to the site had been tampered with. Some had even been, they believed, cut with, um, with electric saws. Uh, and, and large parts of, um, or large collections of smaller pieces of wreckage, rather, had been moved around the site. So there are major fears about, about contamination of the site, about pieces of potentially crucial information, uh, potentially crucial evidence being taken away. Um, so it really remains to be seen when uh, the site can be sealed properly, when international investigators can get here, and when they do get here, whether they will be satisfied that the information that they're finding on the ground really reflects uh, the wreckage at the time of the crash and whether they can get the information that they need from those, from the evidence that they find when they do ultimately get here. Before that investigation happens, what do we know now about what happened last week? We know that the flight, uh, Malaysia Airlines flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was flying at about 33,000 feet uh, over eastern Ukraine when uh, it disappeared from radar screens. Um, uh, in sort of late afternoon, local time, um, and it came down in this rebel-controlled territory. Um, what we saw at the time, and which um, certainly Ukraine and its Western allies suggest is very incriminating evidence as regards the rebels, was that the, the rebel security leader, military leader here, um, a man who goes by the, the nom de guerre of Strelkov, who Ukraine and the West believes is actually a uh, a current or a former Russian agent called Igor Girkin from Moscow, he posted on uh, social media sites that he uses the fact, or the, uh, what he thought was the fact, of rebels shooting down a Ukrainian military transport plane uh, right around the time and right around the place where we subsequently discovered the Malaysian Airlines flight had been brought down. Um, when that, uh, the, the nature of the flight that had come down was revealed, uh, those postings disappeared very, very quickly from those rebel sites. Uh, certainly, Ukraine believes it has enough evidence, and its Western allies, particularly the United States, have enough evidence to uh, make a very strong case that, that this was a plane brought down by the rebels using a, a very advanced uh, Buk or SA-11 uh, anti-aircraft missile that could only have come from Russia, and which could probably only have been operated by uh, highly trained specialists who uh, would probably also have come from Russia. We expect the, the, the West to make its case, led by the United States at some point. Um, and we also expect, of course, that considering that this is a very powerful and advanced missile, satellite information that the United States has available to it should be the location uh, from which this, this rocket was launched. 
Uh, Russia, of course, disputes this and claims that Ukraine was to blame, and is building its own case contrary to the, the, the case being made in Kiev and Western capitals at the moment. Uh, Suzanne Lynch, EU foreign ministers are meeting in Brussels today. Can we expect much action from them? Yeah, the 28 foreign ministers of the EU member states are here in Brussels um, this afternoon. Uh, in reality, there's very little they can do in terms of moving to the so-called phase three sanctions. Um, in order to initiate those sanctions, um, one would need the, the sign-off from EU leaders. So that would necessitate a summit of EU leaders to be called. So in that sense, no, they can't decide on phase three sanctions. However, they can discuss them in detail. There's talk maybe of some kind of limited arms embargo. Some of the countries are pushing for that. And then also they're going to look at the list of individuals and entities that are covered by sanctions already and see who should be added to that list. And we're looking, we're, we're expecting some names and some entities that will be agreed on in the next few days. Have you observed any shift in the position of any of the member states since last week? Yeah, I mean, obviously um, the position of the Netherlands is, is crucial here. The Dutch fin foreign minister arrived here this morning, having been in Ukraine and also at the UN Security Council in New York. And um, according to people in the room, they, they said that he was gave a very emotional uh, account to ministers this morning. Um, now, the Netherlands, along with some of the Benelux countries, had been somewhere in the middle, but probably a little bit wary of, of putting too much pressure on Russia in the last few months. But this, and they had been shifting to a more hardline position anyway, but now there's a sense that, of course, they may be one of the countries that's going to push for a more hardline approach. But they have emphasised, as have ministers such as our own Irish Foreign Minister, Charlie Flanagan, that the main issue is, is getting the, the remains of the victims back. Um, and I suppose if, if Russia cooperated on this, it might lessen um, the pressure on the EU ministers and EU leaders to, do, to take further action in the next few days. Now, among the, the countries that have been reluctant to, to take much action against uh, Russia have been Germany, which has a, an important energy relationship with Russia, and France, which is still mm. apparently planning to sell a warship to Russia in October. Yeah, this has been a contentious issue that has been bubbling along in the last few months and now has really come into focus. France had already embarked on a 1.2 billion euro contract uh, to supply Russia with these two Mistral war warships. Um, and Russian uh, personnel have been training in France um, and, and the, the ships have been, are being constructed um, near Saint-Nazaire on the west coast of, of France. So this would be a huge blow to France if they were to uh, not to pull out of the contract. And so far, they said that they're, they're going to proceed. But um, they're definitely coming under a severe political pressure, not least from the UK, um, to pull out of, of at least one of the contracts. So the focus over the next few days will be on France and, and the French minister, Laurent Fabio, they, you know, didn't really speak to the press about this this morning. So it remains to be seen, will there be enough pressure brought on France to actually do something on this front? Uh, Dan McLaughlin, you mentioned that parts of eastern Ukraine are currently a war zone. Can you explain what's going on there? There is, uh, certainly here in Donetsk, um, the uh, government forces are have moved in closer to the city. It's a big city of about a million people and an industrial center in, in eastern Ukraine. And it is now the base for for the, the, the pro-Russian rebels here. Uh, and in recent days, Ukrainian forces have, have tried to ring the city. They're, they're moving in, tightening, as they say, uh, a circle of armor around the city, isolating the rebels from their supply routes. They say that arms and, and fighters have been coming over the border from Russia for a long time. Ukrainian forces are trying to cut off those supply routes. 
And now in the city, um, yesterday, overnight, and morning today, we heard fairly constant shelling from grad multiple rocket launchers, from uh, other forms of artillery, from mortar fire, um, striking areas around the main railway station, which is quite central to the to the city, uh, only about mm, two or three kilometers from where I am now, um, and around the main bus station. At least five people were killed yesterday. Uh, we've heard more reports of, of deaths today uh, around Donetsk and around villages surrounding Donetsk. So there is a feeling in the city of increasing increasing panic among civilians. Lots of people who are living around the train station area were evacuating yesterday. People who can get out are being urged to leave the city. Um, because there is a suspicion that, uh, and a fear among people living here that Donetsk, this, this big city, will be treated in the same way as, as Slovyansk was. Slovyansk, up until uh, a few weeks ago, was the, the main um, military center for the rebels. Um, and they evacuated that center after very heavy shelling from government forces. People were forced to live in, the, in their basements for a long time. Um, civilians were killed by the dozen. And there is a sense that Donetsk could end up um, being subjected to that same kind of treatment um, in an, to, to drive the rebels out of here. The question is, where do the rebels go from here? This is really their, their last stand from Slovensk. They could retreat to Donetsk, and they did retreat en masse, and they are now concentrated here. Um, but there is a fear among local people that this will be the rebels' last stand, and that the city and the civilian population um, could suffer some some terrible days, terrible weeks, even months in what they believe could be a final showdown between Ukrainian forces and, government, and uh, the anti-government rebels who are, who are focused on this city now. And Dan, uh, are, is the government in Kiev coming under any pressure from its allies in the West to uh, ensure that there are fewer civilian casualties or to take steps to avoid them? Certainly people out here feel like the, the West isn't doing enough. They feel like they've basically been abandoned by Kiev, they've been abandoned by the West, and their only hope for a lot of people is Russia. Lots of people are trying to get over the border into Russia. A lot of people hope that Russia will send forces in here to protect them, even if they're not uh, uh, people who are great supporters of the rebels or their idea of this Donetsk People's Republic, they still fear what uh, the government crackdown on the rebels could do to their city. Um, we're, not he we're hearing uh, some statements from the European Union, from the United States, from NATO, um, urging the government forces to obviously restrict civilian casualties to a minimum. But at the same time, certainly from the United States, we're hearing uh, expressions of support for the government and President Petro Poroshenko, um, and Washington saying that Ukraine is, is perfectly at liberty to uh, uh, and obliged to defend its own territory and to try and protect its people from um, what is being called a, a, a Russian-backed, Russian-supported, Russian-coordinated uh, insurgency. Um, and certainly there is a feeling and a fear out here that uh, with this plane crash and most of the world blaming it on the rebels and their Russian supporters, um, there will not be a huge public outcry, a huge outcry in the, in the international community if there is an extremely tough crackdown by Ukraine, uh, by the Ukraine government forces on the rebels and on their supporters here. Daniel McLaughlin in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine and Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, thank you.
And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>